If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in it to the epistle to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, toward the end of your New Testament, sort of the last few books of the New Testament. The epistle of 1 Peter. This morning, uh, we begin a new series in this book as we've completed our series in the book of Titus. We begin a new series this morning in the book of First Peter, and I've chosen to give this series the title, Living as Exiles. That's the title for these weeks and months we'll spend in First Peter, Living as Exiles. And I chose that title because in this letter, Peter uses that word exile three times to describe the Christians to whom he's writing. He describes them this way, not because necessarily they were actual exiles, that is, they were in one central location and then dispersed across Asia Minor or something like that, though some of them probably would fit that category. Rather, he calls them exiles because that's how he saw them. He saw them this way for at least two reasons that the book itself supplies. First, Peter considers these Christians to be exiles because he recognizes that this world that they lived in, that we live in, this world is ultimately not our home. He says in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. That's what makes us sojourners and exiles, Peter's going to argue. This world isn't our home. Uh, our, our home is yet to come. We're waiting for a living hope. We're waiting for the final appearing of the Lord, and it's then that we will be granted this inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled, kept in heaven for us. This world is not our home, and thus Peter reckons his audience and us here to be exiles and sojourners in this world now. But there's a second way in which Christians are reckoned to be exiles by Peter in this letter. It's not just because we're waiting for the world to come, but because in this world we live in, we find ourselves in foreign and often hostile territory. Uh, Some who have grown up in the American South have perhaps forgotten this. But I assure you, brothers and sisters, there are millions around the world who face this reality every day. And I totally expect that in coming days, uh, generations to come here in the U.S. will sympathize more and more with this perspective, will be more and more conscious of this reality that we actually live in foreign and hostile ground while we're here on the earth. So just speaking to our context here in the United States, uh, we increasingly find ourselves living in a society in which Christian virtues and Christian presuppositions, and Christian truth claims about God, man, sin, Christ, this world, and the world to come are not only unappreciated, but are actually increasingly seen as harmful, as bigoted, and even as antisocial. The United States of America has never been a more inhospitable place to fundamental Christian truth claims, Uh, claims such as the truth that man is sinful by nature, 
and utterly lost if left to himself and under the wrath of a just and holy God. That Jesus is the only way to the Father. Uh, That men and women must repent of their sins and believe on Jesus to be saved. That we are answerable to God and must live in accord with His will. That we're actually to put to death our sin, including our native urges and lusts, and to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Uh, Claims that God did in fact create the world. That human reason and empiricism are subject to divine revelation. That gender is binary and is a biological reality assigned by God Himself, that there is in fact a difference between male and female, that human sexuality is meant to operate within God-ordained parameters, that homosexuality is sinful, and that abortion is a form of murder. America has never been a more inhospitable place from that litany of truth claims that I just read to you, which means that increasingly, To be faithful Christians will entail being seen, potentially, increasingly, as an enemy of society, perhaps even as a a sort of social pariah, as someone who holds beliefs that are reckoned to be harmful and hurtful to other people and maybe dangerous for young minds to imbibe in a homeschool setting or a Christian school setting or a Sunday school setting. In many ways, we are learning to once again resume our identity as sojourners and exiles in this world. Now, though some things about our situation in the United States are unique historically, uh, we should take comfort in the fact that Christians throughout the ages and even around the world today would be very familiar with how we feel. We have always been strangers and exiles in this world, waiting and looking for the world to come. We have never been at home in this world. In fact, Jesus promised in John 16 as a fundamental tenet of discipleship that the world will hate the Lord's disciples on account of their attachment to the Lord Himself. Let me just say, it's not altogether a bad thing for us to be awakened from the illusion that this world is our home. No, friends, we are exiles in this world, and increasingly we will be treated as such in our own nation, and that is an experience for which the Bible equips us, particularly the letter of 1 Peter. So we're exiles and sojourners. This is not our home. We look forward to the world to come, and we recognize that this world is increasingly uh, hostile to Christian beliefs and to Christian people, but the Bible equips us in how to assume the posture of an exile and a sojourner, and no book is more useful in this regard than the letter of 1 Peter. Let me just share some of the major themes that come out of this book. Uh, 1 Peter speaks to a great degree about our unique identity as the people of God, what it means distinctively to be one of God's people. Another theme is, of course, the theme, the heading I've given to this series. We're taught to live as sojourners and exiles and told what that looks like. At first, Peter speaks a great deal about how to suffer and to suffer well, particularly when suffering for Christ's sake. First, Peter speaks to the priority of distinctive holiness and godliness. And, of course, it speaks to the splendor of Christian hope. 
So this morning, for this first sermon in this series, rather than expounding a particular text or even opening up some of these major themes, I actually want to talk this morning entirely about Peter, who is the author of this letter, the disciple Peter, the apostle Peter. I want to do just a broad sweep of Peter's biography. And I want to do that because I think appreciating something of Peter's story will help us to get the most out of 1 Peter. Uh, Appreciating something about the history of Peter's life, his experience as a disciple and then as an apostle will illumine the text to us and enrich our understanding of the text. So I want you to be in 1 Peter this morning because I'll reference a number of passages there. Uh, But I'm also going to reference several passages in the Gospels and Acts. You don't need to turn to those passages as we put together Peter's biography. But I want to show you how his biography informs and illuminates what he writes to us in 1 Peter. I also want us to appreciate, Christians here, that that Peter is well qualified um, to serve as a reliable guide for us in living as exiles and sojourners in this world. Peter knew what it was like to assume the posture of an exile and a sojourner. Peter is familiar with the basic principles of Christian discipleship. He's so human, he's so much like us, and so many of us I know already feel an affinity with Peter, a solidarity with Peter. Well, he's well-suited to be a guide for us. And I say that because it's so important as we seek to live our lives faithfully as exiles and sojourners in this world, we are going to need faithful guides. Guides who can show us, guides who are familiar with the territory of the Christian pilgrimage and of discipleship and of how to follow the Lord faithfully. Uh, Kids, I wonder if you've read that book, The Lord of the Rings. Remember Strider in The Lord of the Rings? He was a guide for the hobbits. And why was he such a great guide? Because he knew the territory. He had walked the land before and he could tell them where to go and what to do. Or um, who is it in, in the Narnia books? Puddleglum. Remember Puddleglum? Literature's most lovable loser. And um, Puddleglum has to guide, I can't remember the names of the two kids, but he has to guide them on their way to some certain place. You kids have read the book, so you know what I'm talking about. We need guides, right, when we're in unfamiliar territory. Well, as we enter into the territory of living as exiles and sojourners in this world, we need guides, and perhaps no one is more suitable to be our guide other than the Lord himself than the Apostle Peter. So please have your Bible turned to 1 Peter. We'll reference some text there. And, um, of course, I'll be referencing texts in the Gospels and Acts as well that you won't need to turn to. Let's follow this outline this morning. We'll consider Peter at three different stages of his life. First of all, let's consider Peter is waiting for Christ as an Orthodox Jew, following Christ as a disciple, and preaching Christ as an apostle. Waiting for Christ as an Orthodox Jew following Christ as a disciple, preaching Christ as an apostle. First of all, consider with me Peter waiting for Christ as an Orthodox Jew. Of course, hopefully you know this. Peter was a Jew by birth. He was raised in the religion of his fathers. He would have been seeking to live in accord with the Mosaic law, the old covenant. He would have been familiar with the various covenants that God had revealed throughout the history of Israel's existence, the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Moses, the covenant of David. He would have been familiar with these covenants. He would have been familiar with the Psalms. He would have been familiar with the prophets. He was reared in Judaism. 
He would have been aware of Old Testament passages that prepared Israel for the coming Messiah. He would have known to be expecting the Messiah, looking for the Messiah, waiting for the Christ, and there were texts he would go to to probably build up that expectation he felt for the coming of the Messiah. And when Peter is first introduced to us, particularly in John's gospel, we see him in precisely that posture. He's waiting for the Messiah to come, an expectation that was birthed in Old Testament promises, and that filled his heart, his mind, to expect the coming of the Christ. And in John 1, uh, we have uh, reference to this expectation. The passage is brimming with messianic expectation. Uh, As the Lord calls into His service disciples like Nathaniel and Philip and Andrew, and they're saying things like, we have found the one of whom Moses wrote of in the law. We found the king of Israel, David's greater son. We've found the son of God. They're expecting the Messiah, and they think they've found him. And it's there that Peter is introduced to us in John 1, verse 40. We read this, one of the two who heard John the Baptist speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought Peter to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, what would it have been like to be Peter in that moment? It was 1,500 years prior to this event that God first revealed Himself to Abram and promised that He would bring blessing to the nations through the seed of Abram, later called Abraham. It was a thousand years before this meeting between Christ and Peter. The promise came to King David, the Jewish monarch, and he was told that a son of David would reign on his father's throne forever, and he would establish justice and truth and dominion throughout all the earth. It was 400 to 500 years before this that the last prophet spoke of the coming new covenant age when Messiah would come. And here Peter hears these words, we have found the Messiah. Well, Peter's initial understanding, of course, we know is dim. Things become clearer as he walks with Jesus over the next three and a half years. However, even on the eve of Jesus' death, Peter still hasn't quite put all this together. He doesn't know exactly at that point who the Christ is and what He was to be entirely. He believes that Jesus is the Christ, but understanding what Messiah, what the Christ would do, he's still putting it together, even after three and a half years of walking with the Lord. And of course, all of the Gospels teach us that it was in fact Jesus' death and particularly His resurrection that became like the key epiphany for these disciples. It was like the hermeneutical key for them. It's like at that point… They understood with greater clarity what it was that the Old Testament was pointing to, what it was that the prophets were were prophesying about. You might remember in our series in the Gospel of John, which we concluded a few months ago, uh, when, when the women come back, they tell the disciples that Jesus has risen, or that He's not in the tomb at least. Peter and John speed off to the grave. And as the narrative goes in John chapter 20, they get there, they lean in, they see the face cloth and the grave clothes folded to the side, and it says that they saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture that the Christ must rise from the dead. 
The idea is at that moment, something clicked, some puzzle pieces that were missing fell into place, and they began to read the Old Testament in a whole new way, appreciating that, of course, the Messiah was to suffer, and of course, He was to die and was to rise again. In Luke chapter 24, you have a, a similar account of how the disciples came to a new understanding of the Scriptures after Jesus rose from the dead. In Luke 24, verse 44, we read this, then Jesus said to His disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses to these things. Now, my simple point is this. When Peter's first introduced to us, he's introduced to us as a, an Orthodox Jew. He's waiting for the Christ. But even then, he doesn't have clarity. His, his notions of who the Christ would be and what the Christ would do are fuzzy. Now, he's got all the same revelatory data that those prophets had, that anyone who had read the Old Testament had. He has all that, that data. And yet still, he doesn't quite understand who the Christ was to be and what he was to do. He doesn't even understand that the Christ was to suffer and to die and to rise again. And, and even three and a half years with Jesus, it's still fuzzy. He doesn't quite have it together. And it's after the resurrection, of course, that he comes to greater clarity. Now, why do I bring this up? Because I think it greatly illumines something we read in 1 Peter, particularly in verses 10 through 12. So you're in 1 Peter, right? Look at the text, 1 Peter. Verses 10 through 12, Peter has just got done celebrating the salvation that we have in Jesus through the new birth, through the resurrection of Christ, and he's just shared with us how wonderful our hope is in the world to come and the salvation that awaits us. And then he says this, verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, and ours by the way, searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and us in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. That's a complicated passage, but if we appreciate something about Peter's history, I think it opens it up to us. Peter, on the eve of the coming of Christ, his first meeting with Christ, stands in the same place as these prophets. These prophets who are prophesying and they're inquiring and they're searching carefully into the, the, the time or the season or the person of who the Christ would be, and there's all these things they recognized, apparently. Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea, they, they recognize, I'm not seeing this right. I'm not... There's something missing. I'm not getting the picture. And they inquired carefully into these things, Peter said. It's like there's a fence, and there's something going on over the fence, and they're standing up on tiptoes trying to look over and see what's coming, what's going to happen, what are we waiting for? And they, they couldn't quite put it together. Peter is in that exact position before John 1. He's in the place of those prophets trying to piece this together. He's waiting for the Messiah. He knows that what it's going to be like, the time, the place, exactly how it's going to work, 
Where this suffering fits in, he doesn't quite get it. So Peter is in the same place as those prophets, but he spans the whole chronology of 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, right? Because he has it, of course, revealed to him in those three and a half years who the Christ is and what he's going to do, and he saw the Lord himself rise from the dead. And now Peter is cognizant of this fact, that everything they were speaking about and writing about is being fulfilled now, and it's for your benefit. Those prophets at some point appreciated, you know what, I'm not going to see this clearly in my lifetime. I'm prophesying for the benefit of people, generations who are to come. Brothers and sisters prophesying for us. And Peter has this sense of privilege that he lives in this age where he has the full picture. He has the full revelation. We stand now on this side of the cross and we now appreciate with greater clarity the beauty and the glory and the wonder of the gracious salvation that we now enjoy. And Peter wants to impress upon us this same sense of privilege. That we're not where Peter was in John 1. We're not even where he was in the middle of the gospel accounts. We stand now in the fullness of revelation in this privileged position, and we recognize the scriptures are for us. They were prophesying for us. The Old Testament was written for us, and we see now something that those prophets could have never seen from the vantage point that they had there in the Old Testament. We see more clearly from our privileged vantage point the glory of our salvation. Well, that's the first point. Peter was at first waiting for Christ as an Orthodox Jew. He was learned in the Old Testament Scriptures. He was looking for the Christ. Now, consider with me Peter following Christ as a disciple. Following Christ as a disciple. The Gospels document for us Jesus' initial invitation to Peter to become his disciple with those famous words. You know them, right? What does the Lord say to Peter? Kids, what does the Lord say to Peter to invite him into a discipling relationship? What does he say? Two words. Follow me. That's the invitation he makes to all of us. Follow me. Become my disciple. And that's his invitation, of course, to Peter. And, of course, the Gospels also give us a window into what those early years of discipleship were like for Peter. As I've said a number of times already, Peter would walk with the Lord, literally, physically with him. He would walk with the Lord For three and a half years during Jesus' earthly ministry, think about that for a second, three and a half years, the amount of time that that is. For reference, if you've gone to college, a typical bachelor's degree takes slightly longer than three and a half years, but you can think of that period if you've been to college or in college, that's about as long as the disciples, and Peter in particular, walked with the Lord. Three and a half years ago, I suppose, was early 2017, you can think of where you were then. Three and a half years from now would be early 2024, I think. That's kind of the length of time we're working with. In all that time, those three and a half years, Peter is walking with the Lord and sharing fellowship with him and listening to him and observing him and asking questions to him. It would be a wonderful thing to interview Peter and to ask him all the things he learned in Christ's presence over those years. Of course, we don't have to be left to wonder exactly. We know, of course, that the Scriptures reveal a great deal about Peter's relationship with the Lord and some of the things that he saw and observed. But I want to just note this at this point. We should all appreciate Peter, from the get-go, did not follow Jesus as like a neutral observer. He didn't follow Jesus as someone who just kind of heard of the hype and thought, well, I'll, I'll sort of trail this guy for a bit and see what I think about him. 
From the very beginning, he followed Jesus as a disciple. He followed Jesus as his Lord and his Savior, as his Messiah, and as his Master. And the Gospels contain several statements of faith and allegiance from Peter. I'll just mention two of them. Uh, One of them, if you've been at Emmanuel for some months, you might remember when we were in John chapter 6. I know that was like three years ago, okay? You don't need to chuckle under your breath, all right? Um, But uh, in John chapter 6, what happens? Uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000, right? And and he he feeds the 5,000. He performs this wonderful miracle, and the crowds follow him across the sea. Remember that? And and the the crowds apparently want kind of like a repeat performance of that miracle, but Jesus tells them, don't labor for the bread that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life. And then Jesus reveals to them by this picture of bread that he himself is the bread of life. Whoever follows him will never hunger. Whoever believes in him will never thirst. And he tells them that part of discipleship means you have to some way eat his flesh and drink his blood. And the crowds that are there are, are bothered by this, and they say, this is a difficult saying. Who could bear this? As they come to appreciate more and more what it actually means to be the Lord's disciple, that it's not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but rather it's an invitation to be Jesus' disciple. As they come to appreciate that message, what do we see toward the end of John 6? Mass defection. They all leave him. I mean, thousands who had come and shown up for the sermon, they all say, we don't like this, we're gone, and they leave and only a few remain. It's those 12, that intimate band of disciples. And Jesus turns to them, and He says, will you leave me too? And Peter wonderfully stands up for the group, and he says, Lord, where are we going to go? To whom shall we go? You alone have the words of everlasting life. And we have come to believe and come to know that you are the Christ, the Holy One of God. That is, so that you are our Savior. You are the Messiah. A wonderful statement of faith in Christ. It's interesting, though, just as an aside, could it be that even in those moments, Peter was being educated on what it would mean to live as an exile and a sojourner, to live in a world that's hostile to Christ, as thousands left, I mean, Peter saw the crowds disperse, no longer interested. Here they are, the sanctified minority. And they say, we're sticking with you. We'll, we'll, we'll follow you outside the camp. We'll live as exiles and sojourners, Jesus, if that's where you're going to lead, because you alone have the words of everlasting life. Perhaps a more well-known statement of allegiance to Christ, of faith in Christ from the lips of Peter is in Matthew chapter 16. Again, you can just listen to me as I read these verses. Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And it's trusty Simon Peter who again replies for the group, and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What's the point I'm trying to make? Just that Peter, as a disciple, decisively gave his life to Christ and put his faith in Jesus for salvation. What Peter does in these passages is precisely what Christ calls all of us to do. 
Do you find Jesus to be the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the one who can give to you the words of eternal life and save you from your sins? He invites us to make a similar profession as Peter does. He invites us into a relationship to follow Him. And Peter models that in his own discipleship. Like I said, it would be interesting to interview Peter and ask him lots of questions. We don't have to speculate what some of the other events of his discipleship were like. Peter would have witnessed many of Jesus' miracles and healings. He would have been present as Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. He listened intently as Jesus shared various parables. He witnessed many of Jesus' interactions with the scribes and the Pharisees. And then, of course, there are particular events in Peter's life that are highlighted, that are particular to Peter himself. And we can see even in some of those events, the Lord is teaching him fundamental discipleship lessons. Lessons, brothers and sisters, that he teaches all of us in some form or fashion. Through life experience, walking with Jesus, through studying and considering his word, he teaches us all how to be disciples, and Peter's not unique in that. Peter is in so many ways a paradigm for us in what discipleship is like and the sorts of lessons we must learn as we follow Jesus. So you have the account, for example, in Matthew 14, where Peter comes to the disciples walking on the water, and Peter's in the boat, and as he draws close, they sort of recognize that it's the Lord, and the Lord invites Peter to walk on the water to him. And so Peter very tentatively gets out of the boat, and he takes those first few faltering steps on the water. And what does Peter do? He takes his eyes off of Christ, and he looks down at the waves and the water, and he looks around at the wind, and he listens to the thunder, and he begins to sink. And it's not reading into the text that this is in many ways a paradigm for us. We take our eyes off of Christ, and we look around at all the threatening winds and waves of our trials and our difficulties and our challenges in this life, and we too find ourselves sinking. Peter had to keep his eyes on Christ, but he looked down, took his eyes off of the Lord, and he considered that the trials were perhaps greater than the Lord's ability to keep him and preserve him through the trial, and he begins to sink, and what does the Lord do? Graciously, wonderfully, he does for Peter what he does for us. When we find ourselves sinking under the waves of trial, he picks him up, and he brings him into the boat, and he commands the waves and the winds to die down. And Peter, along with the rest of the disciples, say, this is truly the Son of God. Peter had to learn that fundamental lesson. Never take my eyes off of Christ. Christ will always see us through trials and storms. He's one who was familiar with trials of faith. Furthermore, Peter had to be taught, as all disciples need to be taught, about the priority of love among the Lord's people. The necessity, the urgency, the import of Christians loving one another, the Lord's disciples loving one another. Do you remember when the disciples were in the upper room with the Lord? Now we're in John 13. What does Jesus do there when they're in the upper room? He gets a basin and a towel, and he gets on his knees, and he washes the disciples' feet. Peter had his feet washed by the Lord. Thirty years later, he writes the book of 1 Peter, but he can remember the image of the Lord kneeling before him, wiping his feet. You might think every time he washed those dirty feet, he thought about that. But, but, but what does Jesus say to Peter and to the rest of the disciples? I'm doing this as an example to show you that you ought to serve one another. We as disciples, we as Christians ought to be serving one another. And then he gives to them a new commandment. This is a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. 
and that it's by loving one another that the world is going to conclude, that foreign and hostile world is going to conclude that you are my disciples. It's not like the Bible never told us we're to love each other, right? But, but what was Jesus doing? He was giving a new level of priority to this command. This is going to be the distinctive mark, the distinctive characteristic and trait of my exilic people. They will love one another as I have loved them. And so we should not be surprised, 30 years on, when Peter is writing to Christians all across Asia Minor, listen to some of these statements, or hopefully you have 1 Peter open in front of you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. The man who had Jesus kneeling at his feet to wash his feet, who heard the Lord give the new commandment, what does he say to Christians 30 years on? 1 Peter 1, 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 1 Peter 3, verse 8, I just want to turn a page over. 1 Peter 3, 8, finally all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 1 Peter 4, verses 7 and 8. The end of all things is at hand. So what? Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter hadn't forgotten the lesson. He remembered how important this was to the Lord, this instruction that we love one another. Now he's repeating that same emphasis. He's bringing that same focus to bear on Christians he's writing to around the known world. Peter learned the priority of love as he listened to Jesus' teaching and witnessed his example. Well, carrying on through his following of Christ as a disciple, and, and we'll bring this heading to a close, Peter was, of course, taught about temptation and failure. He was taught about shame and forgiveness. You, of course, remember, what do we always remember about Peter? He was told that he would deny the Lord, and in fact, he does deny the Lord. In Luke chapter 22, the narrative goes like this, Simon, Simon, Jesus said, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And then, of course, Peter does deny the Lord. Why do I say Peter's a paradigm for us as disciples? Why do I say he's a reliable guide for us? Because he understood what satanic assault was like. And he understood what it was like to give in to temptation. And he was quite familiar with failure. Anyone here familiar with failure? What, what it is to sit against the Lord in grievous ways that make us ashamed? Peter understood that. They understood the sort of temptations we feel and the sort of attacks from Satan we experience. And therefore, when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 through 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. When he says that, we should listen to him. This is one who heard those words from the lips of the Lord, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. He never forgot that. And 30 years on, he's writing to Christians in Asia Minor. What does he say? The devil prowls like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And I know from experience, 
By this time, all would have been familiar with Peter's great fall. And so he says, verse 9, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. First Peter is written by one who saw the Lord and who walked with the Lord and had to learn all the basic lessons of what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow Christ, and what it means to live as one of his elect exiles, as he says in First Peter. He's a reliable guide for us as disciples who also need to learn how to persevere through trial, who also need to learn things like the priority of love, who also need to learn how to navigate failure and shame and disappointment in the Christian life. He can help us in these things. He does and he will in First Peter. Third and final point this morning, waiting for Christ as an Orthodox Jew, following Christ as a disciple, thirdly, preaching Christ as an apostle. Preaching Christ as an apostle. It's funny, when we think about Peter, we think of that episode where he so terribly failed the Lord. But that's not the last we see of Peter. In fact, far more attention is given to his boldness and his courage in the book of Acts, where he preaches boldly and to great cost, and where he stands in the face of suffering and trial as he preaches about Jesus. Of course, he was in many ways an ordinary disciple, which is one of the reasons why Christians feel such sympathy and solidarity with him. He's just so much like us. But of course, we also recognize that Peter had a special calling. He was one of that original band of men who were called to serve Christ's church as apostles, as an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord, specifically called to preach the gospel with unusual power and authority. And in this office, he should also have our attention in a special way. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, the first half of the book uh, essentially tells the story of the early apostles with Peter as the main character. Special emphasis is on Peter in the whole first half of the book of Acts. And then in the second half, the apostle Paul takes the four, and we have the story of his missionary journeys. But the first half, Peter is very much the main character, apart from, of course, Christ himself, who Peter is preaching. Peter is the one who's prominent in the opening chapters, and what is emphasized in these chapters is Peter's bold leadership, his proclamation of Jesus as the Christ, and particularly his willingness, his readiness to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And it's that that I want to emphasize, because First Peter, no theme gets more attention than suffering for Christ's sake. Peter is preparing those Christians to suffer for their identification with Christ. And by the way, he doesn't have primarily in mind physical persecution as being beaten and thrown in prison, though that was happening to some in those days. I think he has in his mind much more relational and social kinds of persecution, being ostracized, being intimidated, being threatened, being put out, being abandoned, those sorts of things. And he's writing to these Christians to prepare them. Brothers and sisters, in our day and age, we need to be prepared also of how to suffer well when suffering comes to us due to our attachment to Jesus Christ. And that comes to the fore in the book of Acts. Of course, you know in Acts chapter 2, if you're familiar with the Bible, that Peter preaches that great sermon at Pentecost, and a few thousand are converted and added to the church, and they're baptized, and the church of Jerusalem is founded, and it's also wonderful. In Acts chapter 3, Jesus heals a lame beggar at the temple gate, and the man goes walking and leaping and praising God. You know that story. And, and 
And Peter and John uh, leverage that moment to again proclaim the gospel to those who crowd around and have witnessed the miracle. And again, they boldly preach about Jesus. Then in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are taken into custody for the first time as far as we know. The religious leaders take them into custody. They're detained. And they're not put in prison. They're not beaten or anything like that, but they're threatened. And they're intimidated. And they're slandered. Things that maybe some of us are familiar with. What it's like to be maligned and to be falsely spoken of and to be slandered for the sake of our attachment to Christ. That's how Peter and John are being treated by these religious leaders. By the way, religious leaders who four years prior would have been heroes to Peter and John. Peter and John would have been so happy to have an attaboy from the scribes and Pharisees. That's all changed now. And now the same people who, who they adored and would have been heroes to them are now threatening them, persecuting them, intimidating them, slandering them. Well, they're released because there's no legitimate charge against them. And we read in Acts 4, verse 29, the disciples are now gathered together. Peter and John have given this report, and they pray to God in light of these threats and in light of this persecution. And we read, Acts 4, verse 29, Peter prays, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. If you think that we are not going to have to have this kind of a prayer meeting in the next 50 years, I'm certain you're wrong. The day is coming, the day is now actually, when we need to pray this prayer. Lord, give us grace, give us help. Look upon their threats. Help us, give us grace. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In Acts 5, Peter and the other apostles are actually put in prison this time. They continue to preach in the face of these persecutions. By the way, you'll notice... They asked for courage in the face of these persecutions. God gave them courage. He gave them His Spirit, but He didn't deliver them from the persecution. Just the next chapter, they're put in prison, actually. And I don't think Peter's sitting there thinking, we'll see the Lord, you know, led us on, and He really didn't help us. I think Peter's thinking, the Lord has answered our prayers. He's given us boldness. He's given us His Spirit. Here He is now in prison. And again, now the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders come to Him and to the other apostles we read this in Acts 5, verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us, talking about Jesus. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Are you prepared to obey God rather than men? Young people especially, listen to me. You're a follower of Christ. You know the Lord. You're seeking to follow Him and to serve Him and to love Him. Get this in your bloodstream. We will obey God rather than men. Don't allow that to be a question in your mind. Peter, as he faced suffering, he had this conviction that was built into him far before this day. We must obey God rather 
than men. In verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And just a few verses on, we get this. Acts 5, verse 40, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, how did the disciples respond? Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Peter's going to talk to us about how to suffer well. He's going to call us to this very same type of rejoicing when we encounter suffering and opposition for Christ's sake. They're beaten, they're put out, and what do they do? They sing, it is well with my soul on their way home. They come home to the Christians who are praying for them, and they testify of all that God did. He answered his prayers. He gave us boldness, and, and we want to tell you about this, and they celebrated together that God had prepared them and helped them to suffer well as his elect exiles. Peter, as a disciple and in his apostolic career, understood what it meant to suffer as a Christian for identifying with Jesus. Of course, Peter did suffer in extraordinary ways. As tradition has it, he was actually martyred in Rome. But he also suffered in very ordinary ways also. Peter's suffering for Christ did not only come in the form of being threatened and imprisoned and beaten and finally martyred. He suffered in ordinary ways, ways in which all of us, if we follow Christ for any length of time, are likely to suffer as well. Peter was slandered. Peter was unfairly maligned. He was pressured socially and relationally to renounce his faith or at least to keep his faith quiet or to adjust his faith to fit the prevailing standards of the religious leaders of his day. He was intimidated by others. It was no easy thing to be a Christian in those days. Identifying with Christ brought, brought with it a cost and some measure of suffering. To be a Christian was to be an exile, and Peter knew what it was like to live as an exile. He would have been an exile among his fellow Jews, put out of the temple. The people who he so admired now scorned him slandered him, beat him, spread rumors about him, tried to incite others to put pressure on him and his other apostles to recant and to adjust their faith. In communities where he previously would have been embraced and accepted and applauded, he was ostracized and had come to be regarded as a sort of fanaticist, as a sort of pariah. Have you had that experience? Social settings where you would have been appreciated and applauded and, and stroked in the past, you don't belong there anymore. You've been put out of the group, of the scene. You can understand Peter at this point. He certainly would have been an exile among the Jews. He also would have been an exile among pagan Gentiles. Don't think the Gentiles said, hey, come on, Peter, the water's warm. You can be part of our group. He didn't find a happy home among the Gentiles either, among whom he lived, we believe, for the last 25 years of his life in Rome. It's very possible that they were the ones that put him to death in Rome, where he's ultimately martyred. 
We're going to see the themes of exile and suffering feature prominently in the message of 1 Peter, and we see these lessons writ large in the life of Peter himself. Suffering comes up in each chapter of 1 Peter. I encourage you maybe to read it in your quiet time this week. In every chapter, suffering for Christ's sake is addressed. I want us to appreciate that Peter writes not as a detached ivory tower theologian, but as a man who had suffered tremendously for Christ's sake. This is a man who had received death threats. He had smelled the inside of a dank and dark prison. He was a man who had scars and bruises from being beaten for his faith. This is a man who's familiar with what it feels like to lose friends, to lose social status, to lose the approval of those, respect, those who he respected in those days. But Peter, like all true Christians, knew that this was not his home, that he was living as an exile and as a sojourner in foreign and hostile territory, and he looked forward to an inheritance to come, kept for him by Christ himself. So in closing, all I want to do is this. I want to read three passages from 1 Peter to show you how 30 years on, Peter tries to help us to face the kind of suffering that he himself experienced. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He wrote this to them. He writes this for us. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, not if, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Well, what if I don't like what the human institution or the governor is telling me to do? I just read for you accounts of Peter appearing before councils, appearing before trials. This man says it's not below us, it's not beyond us to submit to the governing authorities. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God honor the emperor, the very one who would put Peter to death. He says, honor the emperor. First Peter 3, second passage to turn to. Just listen to how Peter pastors us, how he guides us as sojourners and exiles. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Gee, I wonder where Peter heard that. Remember the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you for righteousness' sake. He didn't forget the lesson. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Verse 15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. One more passage. You've been very patient. Please turn to 1 Peter 4. Bring the events of his biography to bear on what he writes here. 
1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And just stop there. Isn't that an extraordinary verse? What did you expect? Trials are going to be normal. Feeling like an exile is going to be normal. Like, I don't belong here. This is not my home. It's going to be, don't be surprised when the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. These passages in 1 Peter are written by one who suffered well for Christ's sake. Peter is well qualified to be our guide as we encounter suffering as we appreciate more and more what it is to be an exile and a sojourner in this world, He's a fit guide for us. Not only because He experienced these things, but the Holy Spirit has inspired Him to write to us. So consider this sermon a down payment on the next few months in this series of 1 Peter. Think about His biography. Think about what it was like to wait for the coming of the Christ to follow Christ as a disciple in all the normal and ordinary ways to learn the lessons that we too must learn. And think about how he suffered and persevered through suffering. And may the Lord use that to help us to get the very most out of this epistle of 1 Peter. We have a kindred spirit and a reliable guide in Brother Peter. Let me close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we pray that as your Son, the Lord Jesus, taught Peter all these needed lessons of who he was as the Christ, how he revealed that sweetly to Peter and drew him into a relationship with him, of all the various things he had to learn as a young follower of Jesus, to learn to keep his eyes on Christ, to keep his faith in the Lord, how to love others and serve others, how to process sin and failure and shame. Lord, as you help Peter to learn these lessons from the Lord and even to learn later on how to suffer in the face of trial and hardship, we pray that through the Lord Jesus you would teach us these very same lessons, that you would in these days be preparing us and equipping us by your word to face trial, to face hardship, to fight Satan who prowls around like a roaring lion, to persevere by faith, equip us to live life as sojourners and exiles in this world. We recognize, Lord, that this is not our home. Forgive us for when we have treated it as such, when we have acted as though this was our only home. We pray that you would acquaint us afresh with this truth, that we wait for a world to come. We wait for an inheritance that's been kept for us by you, Father, that has been guarded for us, protected for us, that we look forward to a living hope, an imperishable and undefiled inheritance in paradise forever with you. Help us to set our minds and our hearts on that home. Make us homesick for that home. 
And in the meantime, teach us what it means and what it looks like to live as exiles in enemy territory. Teach us how to walk through faithfully a world that is not our home, even as we wait for this world to come. May may you create in us all the proper attitudes and dispositions. May you form virtues in us and faith in us that we might follow you faithfully in the years you have us here before we see you face to face in the new heavens and new earth. Help us in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.